0: Well, we are back in the book of Judges this morning, Judges chapter 3, as we turn to worship our God through the hearing of his word, devoting our hearts to it, as we continue also making our way through this fascinating book. Judges chapter 3, last week we looked at the first judge, Othniel. It's Considered how he is presented as the standard, the paradigm, the, the, the best example of what a judge and a ruler in Israel ought to be. But now, immediately we're confronted with a second judge. And as we will see, things very quickly begin to spiral out of control. Here then is the account of the second judge, Ehud, and the assassination of this very fat king, Eglon. Judges chapter 3, beginning in verse 12, and we will read through verse 30. Brethren, this story is a bit strange. It's a bit grotesque. It's God's holy word. Let us receive it as such. And the people of Israel, again... Did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and he went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the Lord, excuse me, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. A people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud beget, made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in, in length. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal. And he said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull out the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Now Ehud went out into the porch, and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him, and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he did not, still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. And there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land had rest 80 years. Amen. This is God's word. Bow with me in prayer. Our Father, as we approach your word, we ask that you would fill us with a knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding that we might walk in a manner worthy of your name, fully pleasing you in every respect and bearing fruit and every good work as we increase in the knowledge of God. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, this is a story that certainly needs no introduction, does it? We have this strange, left-handed assassin, a custom-fitted murder weapon, a cunning plot, a, a despicable villain, and a shocking, grotesque, Climax. Thinking about this story, it certainly sounds something that has all the makings for a box office smash in our day, right? Especially in our day where the more graphic, the better. And yet, as we come to this story, we acknowledge it might be fit for Hollywood. It's certainly not something that we would normally expect to find in the pages of Holy Scripture. Not only are the details a bit indecent, but even the amount of detail is just a little odd. Why are we told that the king is fat and that Ehud is left-handed? What are these cryptic references to passing by the idols? Are the details of the assassination, including the reference to the dung, really that important? And the smell? Just think about this in comparison to the last judge, Othniel. The paradigm, the Christ figure, where we were essentially given zero details. We were told basically nothing. Even then the next judge, Shamgar, all it says is that he killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. Why the detail with Ehud here? And why these particular details? Well, One reason for this is that this is meant to be a funny mocking, humorous story. It is a story that is meant to mock the enemies of God. It's a story meant to depict them as dull and dim-witted and stupid. In this sense, when we consider the, the, the comedy element here, it would definitely fall under the, the dark comedy genre of the movie section. right? It, it makes light of topics that sometimes are considered offensive or taboo. But more than that as well, the details of the story serve to highlight the dark spiritual state within Israel also, including with their deliverer, Ehud. This is far more than a, a glamorous tale in the annuals of, of Israel's history. It reflects the state of things at the time, things that were not good. But overall, I want you to see the main purpose of this narrative. The main purpose of it is that God is demonstrating what He did to save His people so that we will know how He will do it again. We see this clearly in verse 15. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. Among all the details of the story, this is the point that should rise above them all. God saves His people from their troubles. And not only this, but God delights to save His people from their troubles, even when the troubles are a result of their own sin. He delights to save them in surprising ways, in unexpected ways. Using unexpected deliverers, those who are weak in the eyes of man, and a salvation that confounds the wisdom of the world. This is another way in which the author, and the ultimate author, the Holy Spirit, is teaching Israel and teaching us not to look at life from the vantage point of human wisdom and strength. Remember our reading of the law this morning? Cursed is the man who trusts in man, whose strength is in man. God's ways and God's power are far beyond what we can even ask or think. And this is what is on display with Ehud in this story here this morning. So today, I really just want us to walk through this story exactly as, it, as it's given to us. Uh, it would be easier, I think, maybe to give you, you know, three-point outline and highlight the, the, the main three themes. That's how this passage is most often preached, from what I've found. But I think this would miss the fun of the story. I think this would miss the biting humor and the tension that is intentionally created by the author to, to build towards that climax. And so I want us to walk through it, and I want us to put ourselves in the shoes of an Israelite. I want us to feel what they feel, to see what they feel, so that, uh, see what what they see and experience what they experience, so that we feel the brunt of this story. And we can make sense of of it in light of who we are as Christians living in the 21st century. So, in this, what makes a good story? Well, there's a lot of elements to a good story, but uh, a few of the more basic, uh, fundamental ones are. Uh, the setting, the characters, the conflict, and the resolution—we can add to that, but for our purposes, that's going to be fine for us today. That's kind of the outline I have for you. Uh, so let's begin. Let's let's look and see how the author gives us the setting. And and to summarize, what is the setting? The setting is that there is suffering and hardship among the people of God. That is the setting. Suffering and hardship among the people of God. And again, that's a setting that we should all be able to identify with. Beginning in verse 12, we see that right after the death of Othniel, Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Again here is the author reminding us that, okay, this is the pattern that we're going to see all throughout. This is the pattern of the book of Judges. This is the cycle that Israel cannot escape because they do not have an adequate leader. But by using the word again, I think it also illustrates how Israel failed to learn from the past. They failed to learn the lesson from before where God gave them into the hands of an evil king because of their sin and unbelief and covenant breaking. Right after Othniel, who delivered them and gave them 40 years of rest, as soon as he is dead, they go right back to their own sin. As soon as the circumstances change, they fall into the same old habits. In fact, there's not even an attempt to hide it. That's kind of uh, the sense we get from the language here. In the sight of the Lord. This, this, this entails that it's willful, that it's open. You know, th- They're not closing the curtains here. Okay, They are defying the Lord without a judge to rule over them, without the external barrier, the, the fence that was keeping them from idolatry. They return to their sin like a dog returns to its vomit. And here I think we should be careful, you know, not to shake our heads at this. Oh, these foolish Israelites. I mean, don't we often do the very same thing? Don't we often get ensnared in sin again and again and again from time to time? When external restraints and circumstances keep us from falling into grace and uh, great and gross sin, When they're gone, when our parents aren't around, when our spouse isn't around, when our authorities aren't around, don't we also fall into some of the same patterns of behavior? We can thank God for His common grace. You thank God for the Spirit that is restraining the evil in this age. The greater point, though, is that temporal, external restraints and circumstances might keep us from sin for a while, but they don't fix the real problem, the sin of our hearts, what is inside of us. That, of course, can only be done by the power and spirit of our Lord. Thus, because of Israel's sin, when this external restraint is removed, they sin, and as God so often does with His children, He chastens them by strengthening Eglon, the king of Moab, against them. Eglon joins an alliance with other enemies of Israel. They defeat Israel, and it says here that they take the city of Palms. That's a reference to Jericho. It's a subtle allusion to that that the conquest is being reversed that the conquest of the Exodus is being reversed as well. God, where He most gloriously showed His power, the walls came tumbling down, right? The the, the first major victory in this battle now is undone, and the enemies of God sit on the throne again. None of this is outside of God's control. Again, we are to see that God is holding all the cards here, even from our standpoint, when life seems out of control even when your life seems out of control, we must see and acknowledge and embrace the truth that God is always in control. Yes, it, it, it appears at times that He's not on our side, right? From our perspective. Because He strengthens our enemies. Because He allows us to fall into suffering. Because He He brings chastening for us our, uh, uh, because of our sin, but... We must cling to the promise. And he does so out of His love. That His ultimate and greater purpose is for our good and for His glory. And that's what's going on here as well. Thus the setting ends with Israel being under the service of Eglon for 18 years. 18 long years of hardship and suffering for the people of God. Of oppression and that is the context that that is what we must see and feel as we put ourselves in the shoes of the israelites being entangled in sin once again experiencing god's chastening hand and suffering under oppression that's what we must see as a setting for this story so with the stage now set the characters now enter stage left so that would be stage left. What are the characters? Well, we see an unlikely deliverer and a reprehensible king. We see in the characters an unlikely deliverer and a reprehensible king. In verse 15, following the pattern of this book, Israel cries out to the Lord and the Lord raises up for them a deliverer. This is the encouraging and the heartwarming point of the story. God hears the groans of His people, as we've talked about for, what, four weeks in a row now? He has pity on the sufferings of His people. This is not the cry of repentance. This is the cry of pain. And God has mercy. And this represents the grand narrative of Scripture, which is not us scrubbing ourselves up for God and trying to earn His favor, but God descending to us having mercy and pity upon us, rescuing His people when we could not rescue ourselves, coming to us when we could not go to Him. However, if we are in the shoes of an Israelite here, this excitement of hearing that God raises up a deliverer is immediately brought down to earth by this introduction of Ehud. First, we read that he's a Benjamite. The tribe of Benjamin was the first tribe in chapter 1 that failed to obey in the conquest. This also means, as a Benjamite, that he's not from the tribe of Judah. Remember, that's how the book opens. Who shall go up for us? Who shall be our leader? Who shall fight for us? Judah, the Lord says. So right away, as we see this, we know, oh, this isn't good. Benjamite's not good. He's not from the tribe of Judah. Israel would have certainly known that. Then, as well, he's described as a left-handed man. Now, if you're a left-handed person here today, this might be your moment of glory. Uh, but back then, left-handed people, um, in this note would have definitely raised a few eyebrows. The name Benjamin, the name, you know what it literally means? Son of my right hand. So here's a, a left-handed guy from a right-handed family. He's a, he's a walking paradox. It's just bizarre. The humor of the story, how unlikely it is. But in this respect too, left-handed people were looked at with great suspicion in their day and that day because they were so. Uh, we speculate because they they were so rare. Left-handed people were seen as odd, they were seen as useless, they were even seen as deviant. Something that will play into the story as we go along. So think of this, just in relation to all the scripture passages that we read in the Old Testament about God's right hand, the right arm of the Lord, the right hand of the Lord, the one who sits at my right hand. The right hand in that culture is a symbol of power, of ability, of might, And yet, here's a left-handed man. Here, uh, it's also noteworthy that the Hebrew literally reads that he was impeded on his right side. It doesn't say left-handed. It says he was impeded on his right side. Speculation is that this probably refers to some sort of handicap. (coughs) Excuse me. So, it's not just like he's left-handed. He's crippled. So, by all accounts, this is not the kind of deliverer that anyone would expect. We should be like, really? This guy? How in the world is a handicapped Benjamite going to deliver God's people from 18 years of dynasty and oppression? Well, this surprise is only escalated as we keep reading. Excuse me, keep reading from here. Next in this, as we focus in on the characters, Ehud is said to bring a tribute to the king of Moab, Eglon. And this too should cause pause in us as we read this. It was only lawful to bring tribute to Yahweh. In fact, the word tribute here is the same word that is used in the Old Testament to refer that an offering that one would bring Yahweh. And literally, it says that Ehud brought it near. This is the same language. Remember, we've talked about before in the book of Hebrews, to draw near to the Lord is an act of worship. So here is God's supposed deliverer bringing an idolatrous offering to a pagan king. This is not how God's deliverer is supposed to act. This isn't exactly a picture of a mighty and powerful Savior. Furthermore, on this, we get a little flashback here. Next, in verse 16, where we see Ehud crafting a custom sword for himself. You know, this is kind of like when you're watching a movie and the hero is approaching the castle and suddenly there's a flashback, right? Flashes back to an earlier time and you see, you know, in in a room dimly lit by the fire, and as the fire flickers, we see him crafting and carefully measuring his blade. And then it focuses back in reality again. He's he's approaching the castle, and and there's this you know focuses in on this bulge on his on his right side here, where that weapon is is concealed. This is the way the author is creating tension here. He's got this sword. Is he going to get caught with it? what's the purpose of this sword? And what's surprising about it is it's so small, it's only 18 inches in length. This is not a warrior sword. What in the world is such a, a pitiful weapon in the face of a 18-year dynasty? This is all very odd, doesn't make sense. And finally here, as, Ehud is introduced. The villain finally enters the picture. And in the face of an unlikely deliverer, he seems like a formidable figure. Literally. He's described in verse 17 as a very fat man. Literally, his name means little cow or little calf. That's what Eglon means. Again, this plays into the humor of the story. I'm going to tie this back in a little bit later. But it also, in some respects, serves to stack the deck against Israel, at least at this point in the narrative. Later, he's shown to be a fool and dim-witted. But at this point, being fat was a sign of immense luxury. And, And the tribute being brought by Ehud here in Israel was probably produce. And the implication is that Eglon is gorging himself on Israel's food. He is a man who's in control. He is a man who had nothing to worry about. He's a man who saw Israel as no threat whatsoever. And ultimately, though, it's also an indicator of the spiritual state of Israel, as we will, continue, as we will consider in a few moments. It's not a man who's ready for battle. What are they doing being oppressed by this very fat man? And so, in this respect, the characters are introduced. And and at every point, the author has made it clear that all the odds are stacked against Israel. All the odds are stacked against Ehud. And from the world standard, from our human perspective, this is the very definition of a lost cause. But all this does is build up tension. How is God going to deliver His people? And so thirdly, we see the conflict. The conflict is a bold assassination of God's enemy. A bold assassination of God's enemy. The scene is that this totally unfit and unlikely deliverer is going to make an offering to a pagan king. But as they are done, his convoy, and they're heading back home, Suddenly, in verse 18 and 19, Ehud turns and he dismisses everybody else. Y'all go on home, while he himself turns back. Not only is he poorly armed, not only is he handicapped, but now he's acting alone. What good can come out of this? But notice this little detail. In verse 19 it says that he turned back at the idols near Gilgal. This is significant because, as we considered before, Gilgal is the place where Israel made a covenant with God. When they entered the land, this is where they erected the the, the monument of the twelve stones. And so now the picture is where there should be a monument to Yahweh, there are Canaanite gods. This again highlights just how bad things were in Israel. But also, it plays into the plot, if you think about it. It gives credibility to Ehud's plan. By turning back at the idols and telling the king, I have a secret message for you, it implies that perhaps the gods spoke to him when he passed by them. It's kind of a, a verifiable, believable claim. I got a message for you because I turned back at the idols and that's where they spoke to me. But as the plot kind of unfolds, notice just how foolish the king is. Upon hearing this, he commands silence and all of his attendants go out of his presence. Yes, Ehud is handicapped. Yes, he just brought tribute to the king. Yes, he walked away and seemed to have a legitimate cause for turning back. But a smart ruler would never be left alone with a foreigner. It shows us that Eglon, that Moab is not a formidable enemy. The author wants us to see that their 18 years of subjection says more about them than it does about Moab. They were only in this position because of their sin against God and because God Himself strengthened their enemies. Because God was punishing them. So foolishly, this dumb fat king sends everyone out and that's where we get the climax of this plot, of this conflict. Because he's left-handed, Ehud is carrying this dagger on his right thigh, right? You reach from left to right. Speculation is that most of the time guards would search the left side because everyone was right-handed and you carried your dagger if you had one, on the left thigh, right? So you could brandish it this way. Then in verse 20, we read that Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. Noteworthy here is that cool roof chamber. What is that referring to? Uh, Well, it's a euphemism. It is a euphemism, uh, a polite way of referring to the men's room, the restroom. In those days before modern plumbing, uh, the toilet was placed up high, right? Water flows downhill. And there was a, perhaps a water duct system, a sewage system that could be uh, washed out, water flowing downhill to clean it out. And so the picture is, funny picture is, that here's the king sitting on his royal potty. And this is meant to be humorous. In fact, in verse twenty, the word "seat." He rose from his seat. The the word, the literal word, is "throne." The king's throne is described as a potty, and this is a joke that we still use in our day, right? Right. The the, the man's bathroom is his throne. This is a way in which the the, the 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 writer is mocking this king. It's how stupid he is. He's on his throne, as it were, which is really a potty. This will play into the story in just a moment, so hang with me. But God's deliverer takes action. Sorry, with his left hand here. I'm holding up my right hand. He brandishes this concealed weapon, and he thrusts it into the king up to the very hilt. And the king who lived by his belly now dies by his belly. The fat closed in over the blade, and we are told that grotesquely the dung then came out. This is an important fact. This is not a, a needlessly gross fact, uh, this note about the dung. It's actually critical to the plot itself. In this sense, recall how i argued that uh, the king's name Eglon means little calf or little fattened calf. A calf fattened for slaughter. And this takes on new meaning when we see that the word for the sword here is actually the word flame. In fact, this word for the sword is used nowhere else in Scripture to refer to a sword. It's a flame. the way of speaking of a sword. And then you have this picture of Ehud who's bringing near a tribute, right? The imagery is echoing how a worshiper would bring a sacrifice to the altar and the priest would slaughter it before the Lord. Ehud is treating Eglon like a burnt offering, like a sacrificial calf in the hands of a priest. And so the dung, the reference to it coming out, uh, echoes Leviticus 4.11, which speaks of the dung of the sacrifices as well that ought to be discarded in that case. The picture then is that Eglon and the Moabites are as helpless in Israel's hands as a sacrificial calf is in the hands of a priest. Canaanite power is but an illusion. Overthrowing them was as easy and simple as sacrificing a calf if Israel would but obey. And this is the obedience to devote the Canaanites to destruction, which literally means to devote them as an offering to the Lord. Ehud is sacrificing Eglon, offering him, devoting him to destruction. as an an offering of obedience and sacrifice to the Lord. That's what the author wants us to see. That's why the dung is mentioned. But of course, there's another element to this as well, because the the dung also explains how Ehud got away. Right? It comes out so it stinks. And here is the smell coming from the bathroom. And his king's servants are standing outside thinking that he is relieving himself, that he's occupied. And this gives time for Ehud to escape. It's important to the plot. In verse 23, we read that Ehud went out into the porch and then he closed the doors and locked them. This is weird when you think about it. How did he lock the doors from the inside and yet escape? Well, it probably refers to this porch here. We're not really certain what it means, but it probably refers to the space beneath the toilet, the septic system. Right? And that would explain how he could lock the doors from the inside and then get out through the septic system. And thus you have the king's servants standing around now saying, You go check on them. No, no, you go check on them. All the while, the killer escapes through the septic system and makes his grand escape. What a picture. What an escape. What a hilarious story. No no doubt that the writer is mocking Israel's enemies as bumbling idiots. It again says more about Israel than it does about the Canaanites. However, before we move to the resolution and conclusion, I want to consider one more perspective on this story. And essentially, I want to try and answer why it is that Ehud got a private meeting with the king. What was really going on up in the royal bathroom? And I'll warn you here, it gets a little bit graphic. But Old Testament scholar George Schwab has put forth a compelling argument that the reason That Ehud was able to get a private meeting with the king was because he feigned a homosexual encounter. Here in the Canaanite culture, homosexuality was not uncommon at all. And left-handed men were often seen as deviant and homosexual. And Eglon himself, his, his name is feminine. It literally means little effeminate calf. It's not a name that you would give to a male. Seems to tell us something about his character, as all the names in Scripture tend to do. And this makes sense when we consider how Ehud said to him, I have a word for you, which would be kind of like a code in that day for a secret encounter. And this explains as well why Eglon instantly sends everybody out of the room. He knows what's going on. Explains as well why it's no surprise that the murder takes place in the most private room of the palace, in the bathroom. It's no surprise then to Eglon when Ehud reaches under his cloak. It's no surprise that Eglon is penetrated with a sword in a very sensitive area so that the dung came out. I don't have to connect the dots for you any further or to no- note the Extended play on words. But the point of it is, it serves as a commentary on the fat, perverted enemies of God. How Israel was pathetic to be under servitude to them. In this respect, it serves as a commentary how we, so often in our day, serve the eglons of our day. Passing pleasures of sin of this world. I think as well, it points to how With all his cunningness and skill, Ehud is certainly no saint. This is not the character of a man who is fit to rule God's people. He might have even been a homosexual himself. And yet, even still, God delights in using weak and sinful people to accomplish His purposes. And we too can take hope in the fact that God and the power of God and the power of God's salvation does not rest in us. It doesn't rest in our strength and our wisdom and our skill. It didn't then and it doesn't now. The power of the Lord, the salvation of the Lord is always from the Lord and Him alone. And He uses weak and sinful people to accomplish His purposes. Ehud is not The hero of this story. He is not the model of character that we are called to follow. This is a story that proclaims the power of God. Well, this brings us then to the resolution, fourth and finally. The resolution is the routing of God's enemies, but the ultimate job left undone. The routing of God's enemies, but the ultimate job left undone. Ehud escapes. We read in verse 26 that he passes by these idols again and escapes to Sarah. So Ehud turned back at the idols on the way to the assassination and now he passes by them as he gets away. This is a subtle way of demonstrating that the idols are powerless to stop what's going on. They stand by and can only watch. As the assassin turns back and as the assassin gets away, what a ridiculous, foolish person who would ever trust in them. Idols always let down their foolish worshipers. They never deliver what they promise. They never bring satisfaction. This is a lesson for us today as well. The idols of this world, they do not deliver. But again, if the idols serve to demonstrate the foolishness of Eglon, Ehud is not much different. He passes by them, he passes by them, he doesn't remove them. Even though he assassinates the king, he passes by what is most important and he does nothing about it. This is not the kind of leader or ruler that Israel needs. Instead of dealing with the disease, he simply treats the symptom. Instead of removing the cancer, he essentially just gives painkillers and pats Israel on the back and says, it's all going to feel better now. And this is the great tragedy of this story. This is the inadequacy of Ehud as a ruler, as a judge. And yet, in God's mercy, God still delivers them from their immediate stressor and oppression. For Ehud sounds the trumpet in verse 27. This signals that something dramatic has happened. He tells the people of Israel that the Lord has given the enemy into his hands. And of course they follow him, something they would have never done if he hadn't have slain the evil king. And then they seize the fords of Jordan in verse 28. That's essentially cut off the escape, cut off the the reinforcements for Moab. And they are slaughtered there, 10,000 of them down to the very man. And the land has rest for 80 years. Once again, the cycle has come full circle. Peace, then sin, then punishment, then crying out, then deliverance, and then peace once again. Which is the narrative of Scripture, isn't it? From Eden to the new creation But once again in this story, the real heart issues are not dealt with because this judge does not finish the job. Othniel was prevented by death from finishing the job and Ehud doesn't finish the job either. He doesn't remove the idols. And this change in circumstances and this deliverance will not last. This is how the story points the need of a greater ruler, a greater judge, and a greater king to come. Well, that covers the story. All the ups and downs, all the gory details, all the themes and symbols that, upon first reading, we often miss. But as we bring this to a close, I just want to draw some conclusions from the New Testament remember how I began. I argue that this story shows us how God delights to save in surprising ways using unlikely saviors and deliverers, those who are weak in the eyes of man confounding to the wise and wisdom of this age. And don't you see how this story points us to the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is that ultimate Unlikely Savior who brought a, survi- a su- surprising salvation. Jesus Christ was born in a tiny backwater village to a poor family. He was born in the weakness of a manger for crying out loud. Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus had no form or majesty or beauty. That men hid their faces from Him. That He was despised and esteemed not. This is not the picture of an ideal mighty warrior. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You talk about an unlikely salvation. Heading to the cross. That's the most unlikely plot of all. Yet what was weak And foolish and offensive in the eyes of the world, Christ turned this instrument of death into a throne of his glory. Instead of us suffering the slaughter of Eglon, the judgment of God that we deserve because of our sin, Christ instead was the one who was pierced. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was bruised and crushed for our iniquities. While Ehud escaped with his life and passed by the idols, Christ instead gave His life so that our hearts might be cleansed from the idolatry that plagues us by nature. And just as there was an unlikely Savior and a surprising salvation, there's also an improbable little weapon, an 18-inch sword, The Hebrew here describes this sword when it says it's two edged. It literally says the sword had two mouths. Two mouths. And Ehud himself explicitly calls his sword a message from God. A message that could be felt, right? Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use swords. In the very same way, Jesus Christ is that powerful, piercing, eternal Word of God. The message of God. He's the Word. Hebrews 4.12 That is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. No doubt the author of Hebrews had this story in mind. And this is what the Apostle Paul also means when he says that the message of the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews and it is foolishness to the Gentiles, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Because Christ is the wisdom and power of God. And so just like with the first proclamation of the gospel, In Genesis 3.15, God turns to Satan in the hearing of Adam and Eve, and He says there's going to be a seed of the woman who's going to crush your head. Eglon, by the same respect, is slain by the message of God as well. The message that slays the wicked but brings life to the people of God. A message that cuts both ways. This, brethren, is a story that points us to, that anticipates the coming of Jesus Christ and the power and the message of the Gospel. In the face of all of our enemies, in the face of our struggle with sin, with, with, in the face of our falling into idolatry and temptation and entrapment, in the face of insurmountable odds, when we're surrounded by all the passing pleasures of this age, our salvation in Christ's church is not built by our strength or our fitness. The weapon of the Word of God is sufficient for the task. We are called to trust in our Deliverer. We are called to wield the one weapon that He has given us, the Sword of the Spirit, the message of the Gospel, the power and wisdom of God, that powerful and lethal and custom-fitted weapon which always accomplishes its purposes. Always finishes the job. No one ever escapes. Every single time the Gospel is proclaimed, there is a cut both ways the unbelieving are being further hardened in their sin. While the people of God are slowly but surely, you, if you are in Christ, being conformed to His image. The Word of God never fails to accomplish its purposes. May God show us mercy today. May God give us the faith to believe, the faith to trust in our Deliverer and to rest in that weapon of the message of the cross that we might boast only in the Lord. This is what Ehud has to teach us today. Let's pray.